0: Hello, members of the Koshambi Circle. This is your convener, Anupam. Uh, We are recording the voice notes for this month's meeting. As you know, the theme of this month is uh, Gramsci and Propaganda. We are going to be discussing four major works today. One is uh, Prison Notebooks of Gramsci. Specifically, we are uh, going to be discussing from uh, uh, so the reader we are using uh, of Gramsci's prison notebook there are multiple readers of course but the one we are using we are going to be discussing chapter 6, 7 and 8 wh- wherein this reader has accumulated the stuff uh, on uh, hegemony essentially so we are using the uh, reader called an Antonio Gramsci reader selected Writings. this is edited by David Forgax, so he has taken the chapters of his prison notebooks and arranged them by theme. So six, seven, and eight, we are going to be doing from that. Then we are going to be discussing manufacturing consent by Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky, the entire book. Then we are going to be discussing the book Mythologies by Roland Barthes. And finally, we are going to be discussing the piece Fascinating Fascism by Susan Sontag. All of these works Uh, have ideas which sort of interlock which sort of affect each other we'll be talking about that so let's begin with Gramsci and his prison notebooks Uh, so joining me are two other members of the admin we have Shreya who is also the leader of the uh, general caucus and we have Simrita let me begin with uh, some background of uh, the Gramsci reading and how the reader should approach it First of all, do not get intimidated by what might seem in a cursory glance as uh, disjointed readings. They are not really disjointed, and they are actually very readable. Also, in the book, uh, at towards the end, you will see a list of notes. So there are notes on the notes which Gramsci has made. So there are there would often be clarifications offered on what does Gramsci mean by a particular thing. Now some points to be remembered while reading Gramsci. First point is he's writing from a prison cell. So, so to give a bit of background as to who Gramsci is and how did he end up in that prison cell, I'm going, Gramsci was one of the pioneer Italian socialists slash communists. He joins the Socialist Party at a very young age. At that time, the Socialist Party has a left-wing section which uh, which is basically communist. And, and interestingly, before uh, the communist section matured, the extreme left of the Socialist Party was led by a person known as Benito Mussolini. And Benito Mussolini would eventually betray the socialist cause and uh, form a new ideology called fascism, which rejects the class conflict which is central in socialism and adopts what is called Corporatism as its ideology. Corporatism does not mean you like corporates, like the, although the words are similar. Corporatism is this ideology that uh, the state and the contending classes form a corporate whole, right? And the job of the state is to harmonize the contending classes, if by force, uh, if, if by force, if necessary, and hence that is fascism. Uh, a lot of the ideas uh, Mussolini had came from a previous philosopher called Sorel, a French anarcho syndicalist philosopher called Sorel. Sorel was an anarcho syndicalist who, who, unlike other anarchists and syndicalists, gave up on the class war idea and rather had this idea that the re- job of the revolution is not to dismantle capitalism but to rejuvenate it and to rejuvenate it and get a better deal between capitalists and workers, but not to dismantle capitalism. And to do that rejuvenation violence is necessary and to do that violence, the, uh, the, the proletariat has to be animated by illusions like nationalism and finding scapegoats and things like that. As you can see, all of these ideas collaboration between contending classes, having that collaboration by force if necessary, animating the populace using scapegoats and diverting them away from the class struggle and having class collaboration in a corporate whole. All of these are ideas which fascism eventually would uh, copy from uh, Sorel, And hence, Italy finds itself at the unenviable, po- uh, unenviable position that uh, Uh, fascism becomes a very popular ideology and uh, a contender for seizing power. And this seizing of power happens around the same time where the left, basically the socialist party, proves to be extremely unpopular because even though in power it cannot hold on to power and it it basically gives up on the communist movement. And the communist movement, so the communists form a separate party, but that does not take off for various reasons. And uh, uh, Gramsci becomes its leader, although at a very young age. And then eventually, despite being a member of parliament and having immunity, Gramsci uh, is accused by the fascist government of fomenting trouble and thrown into jail for 20 years. At this point, uh, the actual uh, ideological evolution of Gramsci begins and at this point you start reading chapter 6, 7 and 8 so oh, also a bit of background about Gramsci uh, Gramsci even before he was thrown into jail he has been working for the Communist International for a couple of years he opposes the line of the Communist International uh, uh, you know, against uh, uh, for example, the line which comes out of the Soviet Union that uh, the, uh, you know, the line on United Front and Popular Front, Gramsci has a different line on this. Uh, Gramsci is like 31 years old when Mussolini takes power as the head of fascist Italy and, uh, after the betrayal of Mussolini, right? Uh, and Within two years of Mussolini in power, uh, the, the jailings of the communists begin. So Gramsci at that time is thirty three years old. He's leading the United Left of Italy, which is the socialists and the communists. And uh, despite uh, like becoming a member of parliament at the age of uh, and he's uh, at the age of thirty four, I believe. When he's thirty five, he's thrown into jail. He's thrown officially for 20 years when he's 37. So two years later, the trial happens again. Uh, And uh, one of the things that was interesting was that the judge literally says that the purpose of throwing him into jail is to stop his brain from working. And uh, we should all be glad that the fascists failed in stopping Gramsci's brain from working. So like I said, one of the uh, things is that Gramsci wants to avoid the prison authorities and the sensors from basically spotting dangerous stuff he's writing so he's using a bit of circuitous language but when you read gramsci don't think that the circuitous language is only because he wants to uh, avoid uh, censorship he's also talking about fairly complex ideas in which he's disagreeing a lot with the Marxist-Leninist orthodoxy of his time, as in he's disagreeing with the interpretation of Lenin and Marx, which the Soviet authorities have, and hence he's being very careful with his words. So uh, for example, instead of using the word Marxism, Gramsci keeps using this phrase philosophy of praxis. So whenever he's writing philosophy of praxis, What he actually means is Marxism, but it's not just to bamboozle the jail authorities. It's because he literally thinks that Marxism is not a thing that, you know, it's not an ideology, rather it's a framework to defeat ideology. Like it's a framework to get to the actual uh, look at reality beyond ideology. And hence it's a philosophy of praxis. It's a philosophy of converting theory real life political action which is why he insists on calling it philosophy of praxis instead of calling it uh, Marxism similarly like you know he has weird little tics of avoiding you know the guards from realizing he's writing something dangerous like instead of saying Lenin he would often say Ilyich which is the middle name of uh, Lenin's real name is Vladimir Ulyanov. So Ilyich is his middle name and he's counting on the fact that people will not pick up that he's talking like the greatest theorist of the philosophy of praxis in the modern age, by which he means Lenin, like uh, greatest theorist of Marxism, like philosophy of praxis. So he uses a lot of language like that. So Simrita, would you like to talk a bit about chapter 6? Yeah, so uh,
1: to pick up where uh, Anupam left off, so chapter 6 is... Filled with interesting um, sort of critique of what he calls um, the interpretation of philosophy of praxis, as well as uh, a critique of Crochet and uh, his uh, liberalist uh, notions and his interpretation of structure and superstructure. So um, when it comes to um, his sort of interpretation of of philosophy of praxis, what he's basically saying is that when it comes to um, any kind of internal conflict that occurs in society, class conflict basically, and you have um, a revolution or any kind of agitation from the people, the self consciousness or the self awareness that arises therein is that is is the philosophy of, of praxis, and it it goes beyond just uh, saying that okay. Uh, the ruling class uh, has a certain hegemony uh, over the working class and that anytime there is a change or a agitation or revolutionary activity amongst the base or the structure or like the means of production are reorganized, that automatically there will be a change in the superstructure or an overthrow of power. He says that's, that's not true. That's not what happens in real life. And to uh, interpret the dialectics of uh, traditional Marxism, Uh, in that way is infantilism and uh, I I would agree with that and he uh, describes it in detail by giving real life examples and he also talks about how um, he doesn't just talk about hegemony and doesn't just talk about um, overthrowing of cultural hegemony but he also uh, points out how to study history of political movements and how to maintain objectivity during political crises and he does so by saying that first of all when you take the dialectics of marxism so literally and and so um and you apply it without sort of understanding its practical usage um, what you essentially do is you commit an error because uh, all politi- political movements can be historically studied only in hindsight, and if they are being studied in present time, they can be done so through the use of a hypothesis, and it requires awareness of the fact that it is a hypothesis. So in that sense, all political leaders and all like actors um, within any kind of real-time uh, political change or crisis, um, you have uh, people that are fallible. And you have mistakes that are made, and in order to understand how understand how not to make those mistakes, you need to carefully critique and study past movements. And he uh, talks about how you know the French Revolution. There is uh, much ambiguity about when it started, when it ended, and a lot of different people have different thoughts and ideas about it. But uh, those things need to be objectively mapped out. So in that sense, I think uh, what um, what Gramsci is doing is from inside his prison cell trying to say that, hey, Marxism traditionally as it exists um, is not, has prophetically not come true because it's not as simple as, okay, the working class has class consciousness of the fact that the ruling ideology is that of the working class and that you know they don't have as much freedom or um, that they are being exploited by a certain section of society. And then they rise in revolt and then there is a topple of that power and everybody's free and it, we all hope that it is communism. That's not how it works. It...
0: That's an excellent description of chapter 6. To give a bit of context to what Simrita just said, Crochet was this liberal idealist philosopher who criticized Marxism by calling it economically deterministic and who also criticized what Crochet thought was a... Uh, uh, very naive understanding which Crochet thought Marx had about the base and the superstructure where Crochet thought that the Marxist position is that the base is the real hidden god basically the thing that actually like the economic stuff that actually happens and the Then the culture stuff is just like consequences, which happens in the real world. So you would have seen this criticism of Marxism, even in contemporary times where people criticize the base superstructure idea. right? But what Gramsci is saying is that Crochet's interpretation of Marx is wrong, that Marxism A is not economically deterministic. And in Koshambi we have talked a lot about this. We have gone through uh, Marx's writings in, the, for example, uh, uh, when he's talking about the Eastern question, when he's talking about uh, the situation in Russia, also when Marx is talking about in the, uh, the 13th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon, right? In all of that, Marx repeats again and again and again, that Marxism is not deterministic, that it is not economic determinism, that history is not just economics, that culture etc. Like what Marx was objecting against was a trans-historical analysis of culture, of assuming cultural and moral truths as like trans-historical being true always without looking at class society. Marx was opposing that. What Marx was not saying and what a lot of uh, uh, communists misinterpreted about Marx was that they looked at uh, they looked at history in a very deterministic manner, and they thought that you know like like as was happening in the Russian Revolution, uh, you had the Mensheviks who thought that before the revolution could even happen, you need a bourgeois revolution headed by the bourgeoisie, and it was Lenin who said that no no you actually don't need that you can have the uh, proletariat itself create a hegemony which uh, creates the conditions needed for socialist society, the, the capitalist conditions for socialist society. So Marx was nowhere deterministic or fatalistic as is often mistakenly interpreted by certain, econom- uh, uh, certain Marxists who are guilty of economism. So Croce's interpretation of Marxism as being deterministic is fallacious which is something Gramsci is talking about, and he's also saying that just because Crochet had the wrong idea about how Marxists look at base and superstructure. So Marx and Engels keep repeating that, you know, the cultural understanding of history is not something you can ignore. Yes, it arises because of uh, socioeconomic conditions, but it is also important to look look at in an empiric fashion because it informs you how history occurs. Uh, also, it always does, not like Gramsci makes a very important point that uh, cultural stuff also happens sometimes or political actions also happen sometimes, not because of socioeconomic conditions, but because of, you know, organizational changes in the culture or within a political party or something. He gives this very interesting example of the Catholic Church. He says every time the Catholic Church changed its internal organization and you tried to map it to some large uh, you know, economic change or something, you would end up writing some kind of fantasy. Sometimes it's not that deep. Sometimes it's just that the Catholic Church had some internal fight or some sect uh, wanting to gain power or something. And there were stuff like that. He says the same thing happens with bourgeois society. So so what Gramsci is saying that, that A, Marxism is not, you know, should not be reduced to economic determinism. B, the, the sort of uh, surface level understanding people have of base and superstructure where they think that the base is the important thing and cultural and political analysis is not important, that's wrong. In fact, the uh, base and the superstructure dialectically inform each other and see Croce's understanding of what he was critiquing about Marxism was wrong. But Gramsci also says you should not dismiss Croce's crit- critique just because he... did not get it because Crochet is observing interesting phenomena and he is also critiquing what Crochet is observing as weaknesses in the Marxist movement. So That
1: was was beautifully explained and uh, he also makes this very interesting point where he says that in any given society, if uh, a change or a sort of conception or a philosophy, if it's conceived, that means that there are material uh, conditions already existing to bring about that change, which I think is very true and uh, he does this and he further gets into it by saying that um in chapter six only he he describes uh, it as conjunctural phenomena and organic phenomena yes so he says that um anyway so that gets a little too specific so we leave it at that but basically the point is that he is also describing now the relations of force which are basically that you know you have your day-to-day activities and your government responsibilities that changes officials come and go and you have all of these changes that are constantly occurring within the base and also the superstructure. But then you have longer uh, sort of changes like, you know, economic crisis and all of those things that can also be uh, used for their revolutionary potential.
0: Also, a very (laughs) important nuance point Gramsci makes is that changes in the superstructure, essentially political and cultural changes can only happen when the material forces have been arrived, but they don't automatically happen. Once you have a socialist movement, only at that point do you even start fighting those battles. Those other battles still need to be fought and they won't happen automatically. And this is a very important point which Gramsci makes. So on that note, let's go on to chapter 7 and 8. Uh, one of the key points in Chapter 7 is the War of Manoeuvre and the War of uh, uh, War of Position. Simrata, do you want to quickly cover what that entails?
1: Yes. Okay. So, uh, Gramsci describes War of Manoeuvre as, uh, so basically it divides the way the state operates into parts and in how it maintains its hegemony. The War of Manoeuvre is essentially um, the war tactics that the state employs in order to maintain its power, it's all of its uh, military might, what it does in order to maintain the nation state. And then you have the war of position, which is defined as something that is more civic, something that is more uh, internal, like you have your um, education system, the justice system, the post office, all of those things that essentially uh, solidify and give structure to Enforcement of the cultural hegemony of the state as well as its you know economic policies so uh, like in so with war of position one of the positive ways in which it is enforced is the schooling system and a negative or a punitive way in which it is enforces is the justice system so through these mechanisms um culturally the state is able to reinforce its um not just ideology but also what it wants to how it wants to drive society further
0: gramsci is saying is that while it is important for uh, the the uh, the party of the workers or the communist party or whatever to fight the overt battle of organization and propaganda it's also very important to fight the priors inside which those battles are fought so finally talking about the, the last chapter which has been given to read the, the eighth chapter it's talking about things like Caesarism and fascism so th- this chapter is actually going into uh, Caesar, I mean, Caesarism was one of the fears which the uh, French revolutionaries had of uh, essentially somebody who is able to with a force of charisma appropriate the revolutionary fervor and use it for their personal ends and this is Something that actually happened with uh, uh, Napoleon, essentially. And Gramsci has his own take on it. He he begins with uh, what is the problem of political leadership of the modern state in Italy. He he talks about, uh, like, uh, to understand this bit, it, it might be actually useful to go into how Italy was... Uh, formed as a state by the shenanigans of Victor Emmanuel II and um, uh, Giuseppe Garibaldi and Mazzini, and ha- how that gave the state a very specific historio-political character. Gramsci talks a lot about why uh, the Jacobin politics, which we saw in France, were not. Uh, Uh, replicated exactly in the same way in Italy, why the Italian bourgeoisie was very different and and, uh, grew in a very different climate than the French bourgeoisie, and and hence, uh, why the capitalist revolution in Italy did not happen in the way it happened in England and France. He talks a lot about what he calls passive revolution, and uh, how basically the entirety of uh, societies develops a new normal, a new kind of hegemony without the sort of Jacobinism which happened in France. How how, how did that happen? How did insurrectionary expressions give way to this kind of a hegemonic apparatus? He talks about fascism as passive revolution, where he goes into how was the the construction of uh, fascism uh, uh, something of a continuity of what happened before. I mean, fascism itself claimed a continuity with the historic right, right. And uh, again, interesting ideas and very easy to read. Finally goes into Caesarism uh, and Gramsci goes into Caesarist phenomena, not just of the past, which were of the Napoleon one type, but also like what happened in France in 1848 which we did in the History Caucus where Napoleon III took part, which was a very different kind of Caesarism than what had happened with uh, Napoleon I. So all of these things are quite interesting, especially if you look at the contemporary Indian phenomena. Fascism has sort of played the war of position for decades of how hegemony has been slowly built also relates to when we were doing history readings in the history of the Indian Communist Party relates to that particular critique we had read of Javed Alam where he goes into Indian uh, com- uh, communists having lost out on the war of hegemony uh, or, or rather a- attempt to create an hegemony because they were obsessed with the seizure of state power. So, while we are talking of fascism and before we move on to the larger piece of manufacturing concern, let us quickly go into what does Susan Sontag have to say about fascism and the very peculiar cultural influence it has so Shreya do you want to talk about it
2: yes happy to um, you know when we were discussing these, this piece among the three of us Simrita made a joke that you know the title of this piece should have been Nazis are sexier than communists uh, which I Nazism
1: is, is sexier than communism
2: oh yeah. well yeah Ideology.
0: yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, exactly that. And I actually agreed. And then I kind of was like reflecting on the piece and I realized like, Fascinating fascism is not a bad title because it kind of like encompasses this idea that Susan Sontag is trying to portray it throughout because like fascinating as an adverb is like very tongue in cheek over here. And it's making fun of like this elite circle which basically she's trying to criticize through this piece. That is extremely concerned with aesthetic and beauty, and like exactly the kind of circle that would use fascinating as a completely empty adverb that could have either negative or positive balance. People who want to be contrarian and who think, you know, rehabilitating Nazism in particular ways is kind of cool. So, Sontag's piece basically covers two books. One is an illustration book about the Nubas, a tribe in the southern mountains of Sudan by famous documentarian, Lenny Riefenstahl, who you'll get into very shortly, but it's based off of a documentary um, that she did off of them, I believe the prior year. And the second book is all about Nazi SS regalia or, or the black uniform. And uh, this is right in Sontag's wheelhouse. We know she's really interested in photography, the way capitalism and systems of oppression use photography, and in critiquing sort of the moral and aesthetic issues that come with that. So this is this piece, these reviews are in 1974. She's warming up to her seminal collection of essays written in 1977 on photography. Uh, the first uh, review which is on Lenny Reifenstahl's illustration book, uh, is, is in my view, sort of the, the more interesting piece. So the first half of that review, she, she's talking about this book called The Last of the Nubas. It's basically attacking the lies around the, like fantastical rehabilitation of a literal Nazi aider and a better propagandist Um, So Lenny Reifenstahl is this filmmaker and photographer of prodigious talent and she was extremely instrumental to the Nazi propaganda machine. She produced two of the most famous sort of pieces in propaganda history, Triumph of the Will and Olympia. And the first half of this review is basically Zontag being very quietly amused and absolutely tearing down all of these lies that Reifenstahl has used to Um, reintroduce herself into this very Western elite society, this, you know, elite film circuit where she's an honored guest, where people are talking about her aesthetic eye, her documentary filmmaking techniques and all of that. Um, Some of these lies include that, you know, um, Riefenstahl was a very individual, fiercely individual filmmaker who, you know, didn't take orders from the Nazi ministry, including like Goebbels, Saw Lies, like four out of six of her films were completely funded um, by the Nazi ministry. And uh, other claims around how Reifenstahl was very reluctant to make documentaries for Hitler. That's not actually because of moral qualms, but because Reifenstahl uh, was, was concerned, for instance, that he wouldn't truly capture, you know, the structures of the Nazi party, that she didn't really understand them. So like lots and lots of lies here, uh, Sontag uh, uh, debunks all of them, and then actually goes into her central argument, which is that um, because Lenny Riefenstahl is a fascist, is deeply fascinated by fascist aesthetic, Last of the Nubas is in complete continuation with all of our other propaganda films that you know prop up uh, the Nazi regime, and the glory of war and the debasement of Jewish people and those themes are uh, continuing and and, uh, whatever persist over there basically. Um, This can be seen in a number of factors and I mean I won't go into too much detail but um, you know she lists them quite a few times so things like um, sort of building up to this epic of achieved community uh, the rebirth of body and community through worship of an irresistible leader, uh, making spectacles out of death and sort of physical athletic feats, such as wrestling and funerals. All of these are really what she zones in on when she's looking at this tribe in Southern Sudan. And this is also where Bart comes in because uh, Susan Sontag notes that Lenny Reifenstahl is concerned primarily in myth not facts, right? Like she's completely flattened out the historical context of uh, this tribe, um, the fact that this tribe is, you know, succumbing to certain modern influences that that they're in the midst of a civil war, like none of these very salient uh, sociopolitical uh, contexts ever enter into the pictures, which are all, all about sort of glorifying this very aesthetic, beautiful, physical, Um, tribe that is like so moral and pure and whatnot. And interestingly, you know, there's definitely something here. The focus of the athleticism, Sontag says, is very much contrasted with um, the glorification of the mental, which again, goes what a lot of German propaganda pieces did when they contrasted um, the glory of athleticism with the intellectual, urban, um, Jewish person. So those kind of tropes uh, continue to recur. Uh, cleanliness versus impurity that occurs and also uh, interestingly the role of the woman right so um, Lenny Riefenstahl fixates on the Nuba women and how uh, they're breeders they know their place they don't interfere with male integrity Uh, the wedding is not like a big spectacle because it's whatever it's another thing right it's it's a baby making thing it's it's not a spectacle the way that you know uh, fights the death and war and glory and funerals are. Um, and she basically ends this uh, with a bit of a diatribe against uh, the sort of elite people who, who really feel that Lenny Riefenstahl is uh, a genius filmmaker. And she calls out, you know, their their appreciation of uh, Lenny Riefenstahl is fundamentally dishonest because you can't really separate your appreciation for beauty from your appreciation of uh, certain ideas. And she posits that basically why Reifenstahl is still popular is because people still feel that kind of longing for for a bit of a fascistic society. And that's expressing itself in ways of, um, for instance, uh, she she lists a few things over here, Um, you know, forms of community, of youth and rock culture, primal therapy, anti-psychiatry, and so on. so yeah, she basically says that these are dangerous ideas, they can interrupt you, uh, it might be cool to um, support them, because you feel you're in the minority, uh, but it's really not. Please don't do it.
0: I remember we had this one very interesting conversation in the circle about how, you know, there are a lot of people even like progressives and all who will say that oh Lenny Riefenstahl was a terrible person but the triumph of Will was like a triumph of filmmaking and no it was not it was a deeply mediocre movie and like people just uh, uh, like there was literally nothing in triumph of Will which had not been done before like you know camera shot by a flying aeroplane done before like long angle shot done before like it was not a triumph of filmmaking what it was was a triumph of budget a lot of money was thrown at it to make it look grand and there is this very interesting youtube takedown of triumph of the will uh which i'll uh, which we'll link internally
1: i think what's really interesting also in Sontag is that she uh breaks down why people uh were purchased like why people are so interested in this sort of sexualization and uh Kinkyfication of Nazism because she talks about yeah, how pseudo uh, masochism has become popular, and there are pictures uh, in the essay in the piece of like women in like Nazi uniforms and how that was considered you know sexy, and how Nazism still amongst the youth is is something that is very uh, I mean technically. Pornography is filled with these visuals. Yes, yeah, so the treatment of women as well, like with Nazism as an ideology, the rigidity and the way that they sort of um, propagated the culture, it was very tight, it was very disciplined, everything was like properly cut out. And a lot of like the crux of the ideology uh, within like its domestic sort of power dynamic was always that uh, it, the triumph was always like. Um, it was very sadistic and it was and she breaks it down with a lot of nuance although we should quickly critique the fact that um, some of the things that she says are there for the sake of sensationalism and may not be entirely relevant although uh, the entirety of a piece uh, poses some incredibly important distinctions between commie propaganda and nazi propaganda propaganda and why one isn't as sexy as the other and i think that is something all of us should read and learn from
2: yeah, so this, thanks for the overview of the second part of the review, Simrita. And yeah, I think, um, you know, we were talking about Susan Sontag's very polemical style, and it, and it feels like, you know, she's making a mistake over here that a lot of feminists in the 1970s were doing, which is, in Gail Rubin's words, um, sort of associating transsexuality, homosexuality, promiscuity, and in this case, uh, sadomasochism all with this sort of vilified deviant um, framework, like her uh, argument over here is that BDSM is receptive to Nazi influence, but is it something inherently dehumanizing or is that really, um, you know, a bit of soft homophobia? I mean, let's not forget the LGBTQ movement has been fighting to break, you know, these notions of uh, what is acceptable cis-heteronormative um, form of love and intimacy, and there are people who have genuinely found family, understood themselves better um, through the prism of BDSM and so on. So I, I am very skeptical of this take that, you know, sadomasochism is the furthest thing away from personhood, and it completely severs that because we have accounts and we know from people that actually the opposite is true. And that way lies a lot of homophobic and frankly turf ish uh, rhetoric. And I very quickly want to tie this to the reading we did in Gender Month, right? Like we know from John Demilio that, um, you know, the rise of these subcultures, the way they're tied to the war is not because, oh, you know, not just because, oh, people are uh, lowered by Nazism. There's the very historical material processes of gay men and lesbian women actually coming together in sex segregated uh, situations in the war, either in the army or factories and then, you know, relocating to urban centers, finding each other I mean, there's all sorts of factors for the flourishing of all sorts of subcultures, not just BDSM and yeah, I think Sontag goes a little too polemical
0: Yeah, I got the feeling as well that she's like being a bit uh how should i say it? non-critical when she is like arguing that like there is a reach there and it would be it would be useful to be very careful in claims that uh, yes on one hand we have to be careful against uh sort of the fascist uh, appropriation of what humans fetishize but on the other hand what humans fetishize might not be that simple either and could be coming from very very complex places on that note should we transition now to uh Bart's and mythologies
1: yep Let's so i mean Barths is an interesting guy because um i mean in, in the introduction if you read it you'll know that uh, he essentially sat down and wrote one essay a month about um essentially whatever his interests at the time were and what was in the current affairs. So when you read it, it's, it's going to seem a bit scattered and it's going to be all over the place, but uh, it serves an interesting purpose, which is uh, he's talking about myths, but he's talking about what was going on culturally and socially at the time. And it, um, it just goes to show how much you can learn from and how, how deeply you can analyze something, albeit materialistically and realistically and objectively um although i do have disagreements with him so maybe he's not that objective after all but the point is he um, in writing the essays and in compiling them he has shown us how um not just the hegemony of the ruling class but also the desires and uh, what is considered entertaining as well as the types of activities that all of us engage in although it was written in a different time it's still very relevant today uh, he breaks down a lot of uh, what we consume and what makes us consume it. And in doing that, it brings a lot of insight into just the different structures that govern our, just everything we
0: consume. Go through the myths. The, the book is very readable, all right? Like, it's very, like, you would be able to finish the baths reading in like one hour very quickly. There are a lot of points of it which are very interesting and they're very specific points like this point in a certain myth that uh, you know the myth of the army and all where he's talking about how like to normalize things about the army you first have to show all the bad stuff like you show that oh the army is full of these authoritarian asses who like to throw their weight about but then just because you show it to inoculate the viewer And then when you talk about, oh, but that one soldier is really good and heroic and the flags come out and the patriotism come out and then everybody is cool with it. So Barthes is talking about a lot of uh, small, small artifacts in myth making before he goes into his description of what myth making is. Like he's talking about, for example, one of his myths is he calls it the blind and dumb criticism. And in that one, he's talking about, you know, how certain critics would say that, oh, I am not, you know, good enough to criticize on some Marxist stuff because it's oh, so complicated and I don't get it. But it's actually not coming from modesty. It's coming from this idea that, oh, Marxism is so complicated that the common people should not have anything to do with it. And and and, and Barthes is saying that is n't it your job as a critic to like understand things and then enlighten other people? So you are bad at your job or perhaps you just don't want to engage with ideas which are actually like you know complex. And basically he Barthes is showing that how like in these in these very common tropes a certain uh, sort of hegemony to use Gramsci's uh, language, a sort, sort of hegemony is built. And, and even like, you know, in small, small things, how uh, uh, this becomes sort of ossified. When he talks about wine, for example, and how drinking wine is like this really French thing. But then how that has like, you know, a real life consequences about how like wine comes from plantations in Algeria where France has its domination. And within France, how like this thing has become a whole culture in itself. He's talking about the brain of Einstein, where you sort of separate the, you know, the ideas, the ideals and the politics of that man completely and convert him into this saint-like figure where, you know, the brain of Einstein is some artifact in some uh, uh, hospital and like people have completely forgotten about Einstein, the human being, and have made him into Einstein, this artifact. He tries to like uh, even talk about like later when he's like talking about the... uh, Theoretical uh, understanding of myths. Uh, he's talking about how like uh, myth is a uh, a type of speech and not a concept. How myth is a semiological system where he's talking about the signifier and the signified. Go into that fairly easy to understand. And-
1: so like he was talking about wrestling and... Um- he talks about how the reason wrestling is so interesting is despite people knowing that, uh, you know, it is all scripted. And he talks about the fact that, you know, wrestling is not a sport. It is more of a spectacle, which I disagree with because if we talk about that, we have to address the fact that in modern day, all sports are spectacles. If we use that logic, the IPL can't be called a sport. Even the, all, all of these organizations in that manner cannot be called uh, a sport. So I, I disregard that, uh, that point of his. That's my personal opinion. But by talking about wrestling, what he goes to show is that the reason people are cheering so loudly and the reason uh, everybody's so invested in it and loves it so much, uh, is because of the way the narrative is set. Now, uh, wrestling is a very uh, vulgar and grotesque sport and everything is rehearsed from the beginning to end. And everybody uh, that is there plays a certain character and that character is... um, presented to the audience from the first scene itself. So as soon as the wrestler walks out, he gives this example of this really ugly looking wrestler with, with his skin peeling off. So the skin peeling off is essentially the thing that makes you think. And what it signifies inside your head is is uh, the fact that he is ugly. And the at, at this point, the Um, television doesn't have to do its job or where you're watching from doesn't have to do its job the audience automatically because it is presented in that way uh, is coming up with nicknames like rotten meat or something along those lines Um, so it's telling you how to think essentially is the point and it also goes into detail about how when you have the working class is projecting its fantasies and it's uh, uh, sort of craving for justice and and uh, bravado and and just Heroism uh, onto wrestling. And you have, he also talks about the concept of fairness, where nobody really plays by what is considered to be the rules. The fairness within wrestling is a genre, uh, the way he he says that really brilliantly, uh, which basically means that you may have one fair match every four or five matches in which play, uh, wrestlers are respectful and polite. And the audience at that point is going back and reflecting and, and thinking, um, hey, there is there is good in this world, and that's the sort of nice, happy feeling that comes in with that. But uh, what is going on more or less within the other matches where there is a lot of um, agitation and people are uh, doing dramatic things like, you know, throwing chairs over each other's heads and saying things that they shouldn't be saying is that the, uh, the working class wants to see, uh, you know, somebody win in that dramatic way and that sort of trash talk happen back and forth because there is a sense of um, repressed fantasy that is being capitalized on and that's what makes wrestling so great and brilliant and sensational. And uh, yeah, we should just, it. even though he may not be objectively correct with the way he uh, theoreticizes his myths, uh, just going through his uh, sort of little essays that he writes really um, helps us with our own uh, cognitive, our own unique perception of the world and also shows us how it's all the same. Yeah, just that.
0: So on that note, let us move on to the largest and the most uh, like academic of the pieces, which is Manufacturing concerned by Harman and Chomsky. Again, you should not be intimidated to read this because while it looks like a lot, for, for first it looks like 400 something pages, but there's a lot of indexes and examples, so it's actually more like 250 pages, and it's very readable. It took me around like three and a half to four hours to read the whole thing in at a stretch, and frankly, the most Important bits are like within the first three chapters. Like you will go through them very fast because it's very well written. So very different how each of the pieces. The Sontag piece is a polemic. The Barthes piece is a collection of musings when he's going into like each of the myths. Uh, Gramsci is the hardest to read because they are like uh, uh, separate. Like, uh, you know, while they are organized by the reader, they are still essentially separate prison notes the manu- the book manufacturing consent on the other hand is a very well organized book and i I'll, I'll be very quickly going through its structure and then simrita would take you through the uh, uh, specifics so structure wise this book it presents what it calls the propaganda model which is an analytical framework that attempts to explain the basic performance of the us media how that media generates and enforces hegemony in in the Gramscian way of uh, speaking. Now, what is this propaganda model? So this propaganda model, Herman and Chomsky are talking that, you know, so either you can have like direct propaganda as uh, happens in countries, which are called authoritarian. Now in countries like USA, which don't consider themselves authoritarian, but are very much authoritarian, you require a systematic propaganda mechanism to integrate the people into institutional structures and you want to do it in a way that doesn't look authoritarian and that doesn't look as if it's been done by the state. So it is done by the state, but not by the government. And this, uh, the framework they provide for the US media has five levels. It has concentration of ownership, advertising, experts, flak, and the national religion of anti-communism. Now. Uh, they give a historical backing uh, background which says that you know when the uh, capitalism was developing in like in like victorian england at first they tried to use authoritarianism to shut down left leaning newspapers but it did not work then they realized that you don't actually need authoritarianism and fines and you know uh, making their life hell to shut uh, left-leaning newspapers down. So, so they go into the example that in the in the uh, old uh, Britain, one of the largest newspapers was Daily Herald, which was a social democratic newspaper run by the Labour Party, and the Daily Herald had a readership of 4.7 million people, which is huge for that time, and it was more than double the readership of uh, Times, Guardian and Financial Times combined, which were like the mainstream newspapers. Well happy to note that Times and Guardian are still like, you know uh, purveyors of right wing thought, pretending to be liberal thought in Britain still. So so Herman and Chomsky explain how the Daily Herald was taken down. So first, these people, the politicians, they tried all sorts of shenanigans. The Daily Herald was very popular and had a huge readership. So it was not easy to put down. But then the capitalists invented something else, which was advertisement. See, till you had advertisements in newspapers, the way a newspaper ran was on its popularity. If Daily Herald was more popular than Times, that Daily Herald had more money than Times and it could run more than Times and had cheaper issues of newspaper more than Times but when advertisement happened suddenly the newspapers did not depend on the readers to give them money now the advertisers were giving them money and the advertisers of course will not give their advertisement to left-wing newspapers so suddenly due to the subsidies given by the capitalists right-wing newspapers were much much factors of times cheaper than left-wing newspapers and left-wing newspapers were driven out of business why? Because now the mass media was into a symbiotic relationship with advertisers, with capitalists. And uh, it's not as if these capitalists do not uh, fund other sources of information generation. So, so the first point of the propaganda model is the concentration of ownership. And Herman and Chomsky talk about What the state could not do, the free market did. In America, 29, when the time this book was written, 29 largest media systems account for half the output of newspapers. And these 29 organizations are basically controlling the the generation of the hegemony, right? And with more and more commercialization, deregulation and integration of the media into the market more and more influenced basically by the corporations happened. So, and these corporations fund other organizations which create the respectable information, which is always right-leaning, free-market-leaning, conservative information. I did an error. I, I think conflated the concentration of ownership and the advertising into one category, yeah, but yeah, they yeah. are two. So, concentration of ownership is... Uh, stuff like the General Electric and the American Enterprise Institute, etc., and advertising is a second level. So. Basically, capitalist forces, but they do separate them into two separate parts.
1: And uh, also, it's it's interesting to read this because, uh, I mean, this is stuff we already know, right? We already know that where the money is and how it gets pushed around is uh, who gets to decide what we get to hear and what is news and what is it. Um, and one interesting example here um, that is in uh, manufacturing consent is... This has been going on since forever, like in um, during the Soviet era when Reagan was the president, uh, a lot of most of the newspapers at the time, like The New York Times and The Guardian and all of those guys were um, running propaganda about how the Soviet regime is corrupt and how they are violent and oppressive. And while some of that, a lot of that would be rooted in truth. um, What is important also is that um, the assassination of the Pope was very conveniently uh, blamed on the KGB and the Bulgarians, even though the guy that assassinated the Pope was a, a anti-left violent Turkish fascist. So um, the news wasn't verified and later when the archives opened and more research was done, you know you um, only in hindsight do we know how much of misinformation actually prevails in the news. And um how much, and we don't even know how much we don't know has prevailed before due to us not having that kind of transparency. So basically it uh, talks about how the concentration of wealth and how the changing landscape of uh, neoliberalism and late state current stage of capitalism uh, furthers the um, just the concentration of power where now you not just have people within the nation states that have stake within uh, news agencies, that are uh, getting to decide what the working class gets to know about and what it doesn't and influences public opinion. But also the fact that due to uh, international interests and due to imperialism and open markets, um, what we get to see is a very convoluted uh, perception of uh, reality.
0: So the third stage of the propaganda model, which does a lot into the sort of thing you were talking about, Samrita, Uh, the perpetuation of essentially these lies and sort of lending them credence is the whole army of experts. What has happened is that as the mass media has become more and more of a business which has to compete other mass media which is running as business, it needs sources of conveniently available large amounts of information which are like very nicely curated, etc., And experts provide these sources to the point that the mass media uh, gets drawn into a symbiotic relationship with sources of information. Uh, Herman and Chomsky call this the principle of bureaucratic affinity. That is, bureaucracy support bureaucracy. So if you are in a bureaucratic media organization, which daily needs like a ton of information, you need like credible sources, which you don't want to like, you know, you don't even have the time to verify. And who are your credible sources? The same 5-10 people who are either like government voices or who are the same 5-6 faces you see on panel debates, etc. And, and often these people are like cranks and frauds and charlatans who just hang around because they're so convenient for the media. And like every single time the media needs a voice of authority, they will just catch hold of these people. The entire career and, uh, uh, you know, Uh, credibility of these people lie on the fact that the media keeps inviting them to be their sources and the media keeps inviting them to their as their sources because the media considers them credible and this keeps happening because these people very conveniently say the things the media wants to hear and report like when i was reading about this in manufacturing concern this is so relatable when it comes to the indian media like Reason, one of the reasons the Indian media is so disgusting is because it does exactly this. It has created this army of experts who are nothing but experts and they get to be the voices which decide how like the hegemonic uh, uh, narrative is perpetuated. Uh, the next uh, layer of the propaganda model is what Herman and Chomsky called flack. So FLAC refers to negative responses to a media statement of program, if even in this really entrenched system where most of the media is controlled by capitalism and and then gets their sources from experts, which are basically voices which the establishment finds convenient, even at that position, at times, sometimes, you know, one report or one uh, journalist would develop a spine and they would actually find something which would create problems. And at that time, there is a mechanism to punish the media, which is called flack. And how does flack happen? Either you will have immediately these think tanks and NGOs, which will start saying that, oh, this media is left liberal, whatever, and it's opposing the free market business, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Or you will have, uh, so flack is often not direct. Like, of course, it can be direct as well with the state basically uh making certain media houses unpopular and cutting their bread and butter but often it it attacks their funding it atta- uh, it, it uh, calls into doubt the integrity of individual journalists all the basic tactics whereas as soon as you go against the entrenched powers you will be dragged in public and this is what is referred to as flack and the final, like, if none of this works, like, you know, you have capitalism, which is the concentration of wealth and power and the advertising system. You have the whole bevy of experts. Then you have flak to ensure the policing of the media. The final thing is the national religion. And in the American context, uh, Herman and Chomsky called the anti-communism as the uh, national religion of America where communism is the ultimate evil, all right? And it doesn't matter if some country is not communist, even if they do some, you know, random liberal thing. And if America wants to attack them, they will be painted as communists and immediately they will be attacked. Of course, when the book Manufacturing Consent was written, it was anti-communism in America. But in today's day and age, we see the same sort of thing in India as well, where there are certain narratives, which are public enemy number one, and anybody and everybody can be painted as a seditious traitor by painting them with that narrative. And, and so Chomsky and Herman gave this example that in Poland, some person was murdered. And that time, Poland was a socialist country or you know a country which supported Soviet Union or something. And this murder was, yes, brutal, very bad. And it was rightly condemned. But a bunch of people were murdered in some Latin American country. And that country was being ruled by... A right-wing militant dictatorship and drive where it tries to like paint that oh the, you know that was a fight between bad people on the left and bad people on the right and oh you know like that sort of both sideism which we see uh media do that a lot when the victims are inconveniently left-wing and the perpetrators are inconveniently right-wing we have seen that in america and we have seen that in india uh chomsky and Herman give some very interesting examples like they give the example of Cambodia so Cambodia had this dictatorship by this uh dictator. when he sees power this was like uh talked about a lot in American media uh, and it of course you know why did Pol Pot get into power none of that was explored just that Pol Pot is doing a genocide okay Pol Pot is doing a genocide and that is horrible talk about that but then what happens Vietnam becomes an enemy of Cambodia Vietnam, which is also a communist country. And Vietnam invades Cambodia, but now the Cambodian government under Pol Pot, who is remember a genocidal dictator, he's being supported by the American government. And suddenly the American media stops talking about Pol Pot because now it's completely raised that it was a communist country which stopped the genocide, which was happening in Cambodia. While the American government and the Chinese government, by the way, were surreptitiously supporting this genocidal dictator. Who is the victim worthy of sympathy and who is the victim not worthy of sympathy is very much dictated by which side of the national religion, the national religion being whatever is it that the capitalist hegemons have chosen to paint as the latest scapegoat, which side of the national religion the victims are on. It doesn't matter if they're in some poor country somewhere. Like other examples are given throughout manufacturing consent where they're talking about how in some poor global South countries where the governments are even slightly, you know, left wing, but they oppose American imperialism. They are like evil and their governments are corrupt. But in some other similarly poor countries in the global South where the government slightly support America, oh, then, oh, they are democratic and their democracy, even if it is corrupt and flawed, at least they are trying to be democratic and, then they are being praised for the very same thing. So on that note, I would ask you to go through uh, manufacturing consent yourself. I've just given you a very shallow, uh, bare bones outline of the argument, the uh, propaganda model is making. And there was also an article which was shared in the group, which was about uh, people who had critiqued to the, despite it being really old and despite certain flaws, the propaganda model is still an extremely useful framework for understanding propaganda. Thank you, Shreya and Simrita, for helping uh, record the voice notes. And on that note, I'll ask members to read all the things. Again, uh, till the meeting happens, there is enough time to read everything. And I hope that the voice notes have made you at least curious enough. So we hope to see you all in the meeting. Thanks, everyone.